0: Well, good morning again, Grace people. Good to be with you this morning. As we come into the fall, a fall kickoff, uh, the excitement of new beginnings, praying for our schools and uh, thinking about schools and instruction and things like that, I have a little thought experiment I want to do with you this morning. I'm going to read a paragraph, and I want to see if you can figure out what I'm talking about. I'm just going to read the paragraph. You see if you can figure out what I'm talking about. OK, so here we go. The procedure is actually quite simple. First, you arrange things into different groups. Of course, one pile may be sufficient, depending on how much there is to do. If you have to go somewhere else due to a lack of facilities, that is the next step. Otherwise, you are pretty well set. It is important not to overdo things. That is, it is better to do too few things at once than too many. In the short run, this may not seem important, but complications can easily arise. A mistake can be expensive as well. At first, the whole procedure will seem complicated. Soon, however, it will become just another facet of life. It is difficult to foresee in any end to the necessity for this task in the immediate future, but then one never can tell. After the procedure is completed, one arranges the materials into different groups again. Then they can be put into their appropriate places. Eventually, they will be used once more, and the whole cycle will have to be repeated. However, that is a part of life. Okay, without saying anything, just raise your hand if you are absolutely certain you know what it was I was talking about. Oh, a couple people raise their hands. Right? right, don't say anything. Don't share anything. And, uh, and Anna, it doesn't count because you were here last service. <laughs> now, raise your hand if you kind of maybe have an idea. You're thinking, I might know what Pastor Darren was talking about, but I'm not quite sure. Raise your hand. Okay, a uh, few, few more hands. Raise your hand if you really, totally no clue what it is that I was talking about. Yeah, exactly. That's the majority. Very good. Excellent. Hey, no problem. No problem. Um, so, so I'm, I'm going to ask Becky... Becky, you weren't here last service, were you? All right, Becky, you know what I was talking about? What was I talking about? Laundry! Laundry. You nailed it! That's right. (laughs) Talking about laundry. So let me read it again, and let's see now if it makes a little more sense to you. The procedure is actually quite simple. First, you arrange things into different groups. Of course, one pile may be sufficient, depending on how much there is to do. If you have to go somewhere else due to lack of facilities, that is the next step. Otherwise, you're pretty well set. It is important not to overdo things. That is, it is better to do too few things at once than too many. In the short run, this may not seem important, but complications can easily arise. A mistake can be expensive as well. At first, the whole procedure will seem complicated. Soon, however, it will become just another facet of life. It is difficult to foresee any end to the necessity for this task in the immediate future. But then, one never can tell. After the procedure is completed, one arranges the materials into different groups again. Then they can be put into their appropriate places. Eventually, they will be used once more, and the whole cycle will have to be repeated. However, this is a part of life. Makes more sense now, doesn't it? Yeah? If you know the context, the text makes a lot more sense. As we come into a new year here at Community of Grace, a new school year, we are starting on a journey together a journey through 66 books of the Bible, the full Bible story. And there's a reason we're doing that. It's because so often we look at a text and don't understand the context. And if we don't understand the context of any story, we may completely go off the rails. We may misapply it. We may misunderstand it. We may simply not have any idea what is being talked about, whether we're talking about it with ourselves or with others. Those of us who have been in the business or in the calling, I should say, of preaching and teaching over the years, have discovered something, and that is that as people have journeyed through life, many people love to cherry-pick particular verses out of the Bible, or maybe particular stories out of the Bible, and apply them in ways that they were never intended to be applied, and that's because we miss the bigger context. We misunderstand the bigger context of the big Bible story. That's why we're beginning this journey this fall on something called the Narrative Lectionary. We won't be touching on all 66 books, but over the course of the year, we will cover the big story, important passages and important sections from the Bible that help us incorporate our understanding of the full story of Scripture to give us a better context to understand. That's the journey that we're on. Now, before you begin any journey, it's important to define just what kind of journey this is going to be, because if you don't define the journey, you might get lost. You might not know where you're going, or you might wind up in some unexpected place. See, it's kind of like understanding the difference between a family trip and a vacation. (laughs) Yeah, those of you who have families, you know exactly what I'm talking about. If you don't, let me simply explain it to you. When I was a young parent, I had my children of the ages of uh, two, four, actually I think they may have been one, three, and five at the time, and I came back from a long mission trip that I was leading a bunch of teenagers on, and and we had planned when I got back to go on a vacation. We would take our family of a one-year-old, three-year-old, and five-year-old out to South Dakota, out to Mount Rushmore, Because what better thing could there be for a one-year-old, a three-year-old, and five-year-old than to gaze upon the faces of presidents? (laughs) I thought I was going on vacation. I was going on a family trip, and I really didn't know what I was doing. And as a result, that trip was incredibly frustrating, challenging for every one of us. Oh, there are stories within the stories that I won't tell you right now, but believe me. It was a family trip and not a vacation. From that point on, I knew the difference. And the thing is this, if you know the difference, then you can fully embrace and enjoy the journey. You can go knowing that, oh, this is going to be a family trip. We're going to see things. We're going to manage each other's emotions. We're going to recognize that there are going to be times where one or the other of us is just going to be like, I'm out. I'm done with this. Forget it. We're going to argue over food that we're going to eat. We're going to do all those kinds of things. Very different than going on a vacation where you expect to go and relax and rest and be refreshed and restored. So if you don't know what kind of journey you're on, that can also make the trip very frustrating. On this journey in the Bible, it's important for us to understand some things about the Bible as we go through this journey. So let me tell you some things about the Bible, and let me start by saying some things that the Bible is not, okay? Number one, the Bible is not a history book, Now, let me clarify that. There is history within the Bible, without a doubt. Rich history. Wonderful things that we can learn about humanity's past, for sure. But at its root, it is not a history textbook. It's not like a textbook you would pick up in school and just start reading and expect to be watching year by year as things pass by. That's not the way the Bible is put together, and that's not its primary purpose. So it is not primarily a history book. The Bible is also not a science textbook, okay? If you go to the Bible expecting to explore and understand scientifically things about the world, you will be disappointed. Because the simple fact of the matter is most of the realities of the scientific method didn't exist when the authors of the Bible were writing the Bible. And every one of those books being fully inspired by the Holy Spirit, we should expect that what is there is true, which it is absolutely but it was never intended to explain, the, especially, the, the, the hows and the whens of the world. So it's not a science book in the way that we think about science textbooks. The Bible is also not an instruction manual. This one's an important one. Sometimes people will pull out the Bible and will think of the Bible as being like, like a Chilton's manual for your life. Anybody remember a Chilton's manual? Chilton's manuals were those manuals that you would buy for the specific year and model of car that you had. And you would open it up, and if you had a question about a particular part or a particular piece, there would be a spot in there that you could flip through, and you could go, oh, there's the answer to my specific question. Okay, The Bible is not an instruction manual. There was a time where people used to use the the term B-I-B-L-E, and they would use it to say basic instructions before leaving earth. I don't think any of that makes sense, okay? Because first of all, the Bible is not basic. The Bible is very deep. It's in depth. There's many, many beautiful facets of things that we learn within the Bible. So it's not basic, and it's not as simplistic as to just say, well, it's instructions. Oh, if you've got X going on in your life, just flip open the page. Oh, I've got a stomach ache. What should I do? Let me flip open the page, and it'll give me a specific instruction on what to do. Well, drink a little wine for your stomach. Okay, well, that's what uh, Paul says to Timothy, but that's not the end-all be-all of what to do if you've got a stomachache. We don't read the text through the instruction manual lens. Okay? What is the Bible, then? Well, the Bible is a book of faith. It is a book of faith. It is a mix of stories and of poetry and of songs and of prophecy and of sermons and of letters that reveal God's holiness and his healing of the whole of creation. That's what the Bible is, and it is rich in every one of these areas. And you can never stop learning and plumbing in the depths of what it is that is being revealed to us through the pages of Scripture. So let's understand the journey that we're on, and then let's begin that journey at the beginning today, okay? Because that's what we're going to do. We're going to begin at the beginning in the book of beginnings, which is another word for the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 1. If you brought your Bibles with you this morning, please feel free to open them up to Genesis chapter 1. I'm going to begin reading right away in chapter 1, verse 1, right at the very beginning. So here we go. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The first day. I'm going to pause there. You can continue reading, obviously, and I would encourage you to continue reading through the beauty of the first chapter of Genesis because it goes on to explain and to share and to speak of the many facets of creation. Now, people read this text, and sometimes, like I said before, they try to read it as a history book or a science book or an instruction manual, and they miss out on the beauty of this passage in Genesis. See, this passage in Genesis isn't meant to be a how or a when to creation. It's to be a who and a why. Who and a why. And the who at the center of this is God. (laughs) This is what this passage is about. It's about God. And we get a quick introduction to the ways of God and, and the work of God in creation. These first six days of creation, if you you read them, you'll see a beautiful pattern of what God is up to, a parallel between the first three days and the second three days. In the first three days, God is busy separating things. He separates the light from the darkness in day one. In day two, he separates the waters, waters above and waters below. And in the third day, he separates the land from the sea, a work of separating three things putting things into their proper places and categories. That is what God is up to in these first three days. And then in the second three days, he fills each one of those same spaces. We see light and darkness being separated in day one. And in day four, God further separates these by placing rulers, ruling lights, the stars and the sun and the moon, each to govern these different times and break them up into their seasons and days. So he fills that space. And then on the second day, we we see this separating of the waters above and the waters below. And what does God do on day five? He fills the sky and he fills the sea with animals, animals that fly and animals that swim. He fills the ocean and the sky with life. And then in day three, we see God separating the land from the water, and in day six, we see God filling the land with creatures, with animals, filling it with life. And at the end of day six, we see God create something very special, and that's humanity. But in all of this, we recognize something, and that's this. God is God, And you are not. Key message from Genesis chapter 1. God spends five-sixths of this creative energy creating things completely without you. He doesn't need your support. (laughs) He doesn't require your assistance. God is God. And he is great. And he establishes all of this and sustains it without your help. This is an important thing for us to learn as we look at these opening pages. We didn't spring up from nothingness, we sprung up from God's creative design to make something and to make a world and to fill that world with life. God is God, and He is the Creator, and you are a part of His creation. Another way of saying that is you are a creature. God is creator and you are a creature. Now, those of you who have little children who tend to have bodily functions that can sometimes run out of control and go all over the place may definitely understand how your children can be viewed as creatures. My gosh, this creature that I've got to deal with, right? That only continues on for about the next 18 years. But here's the thing, all of us are creatures. We are creatures, we are part of God's creation. Are we a special part of that creation? Absolutely. But we should not just separate ourselves out somehow from the creation or somehow think that that we are the ones who are in charge of the creation. We are not, God is God, God is creator, you are creation. And we must remember this because, in our ultimate desire that so often emerges, we want to be the ones in control. We want to be the ones who set the agenda. We are the ones who want to exert power over everything around us. And the simple fact of the matter is you're not God. God alone is God. And He is the Creator. And not only that, He is the Creator, but He is also the Judge. As we work through these pages of this first chapter of Genesis, we see God repeatedly saying something after he creates it. It is good. God is the one who determines that which is good and that which is not. Not us. We are not judges. There is one judge. God himself. And he establishes himself firmly in that role very early on in the story so that we look around us and recognize it's not up to us to decide what is good or what is not. In fact, we find out later on that when we spend too much time trying to figure out that which is good or that which is evil or playing games with what we think we are being told, we are easily deceived about what is good and what is evil. And in addition, as the story goes in chapter 2 of Genesis, (laughs) we wind up eating from the tree of the knowledge of what? Good and evil. Placing ourselves in that position of judge. God is the judge. God is the judge. So what does that make us? Well, in the courtroom, if God is the judge, we are the witnesses. That's what we are. We are the witnesses. We are to bear witness to who God is. We're to speak truthfully about who God is and recognize where we are not. But God is. God is good. And God is the judge. So God is creator, God is judge, and then God is king. The kind of power that God exerts in these opening chapters of the Bible make it clear that God is majestic and royal, powerful, powerful, the one who is the ultimate judge, the ultimate creator, the ultimate wielder of power who holds things together by his own word. God is incredible and mighty and full of majesty. He is a king. Now, we don't have a lot of frame of reference for these things in our world today, but if you've been paying any attention this last week, you probably caught on that another royal somebody who we've come to know and be familiar with for these past 70 years, recently passed away. Queen Elizabeth II, the sovereign, the Queen of England. And as we look upon her life, we recognize some things that help point us to what the one and only true king is all about in God. Queen Elizabeth was was known for being royal, She couldn't help it. She was born into it. And she would often be adorned in the royal garments, regalia, a crown, a robe, a scepter in his hand, or in her hand in this case, all images that we see throughout Scripture about God as king. This image of Queen Elizabeth and and her impact on the world Regardless of what you think about earthly monarchies, since we certainly aren't one in the United States, it's important to understand the symbolism and what it means to operate in that role. In fact, I came upon a story that reminded me of the way in which Queen Elizabeth lived out her role on the world stage. Of course, we recognize 21 years ago, September 11th, 2001, Was a day that those of us who were alive to see it will never forget. What you may not know is that two days later, Queen Elizabeth broke 600 years of English tradition and royal tradition by choosing to instruct her guards and her marching band, her orchestra that takes place at the changing of the guards in the morning to do something that they had never done in 600 years. And that was, instead of playing the marching music that they would normally play, to instead play the national anthem of the United States of America. As a gesture, as a token, but a powerful one from somebody who carried the kind of royal position that Queen Elizabeth held. This is an image of the kind of impact and the kind of adoration that we recognize in God as our King. But there's something else that others may not know about when it comes to Queen Elizabeth, and that was she was a woman of deep faith, held a deep faith in Jesus as her Lord and Savior. And as one who held a deep faith, she often lived her life and expressed her faith in hidden ways, in ways that the average person might not see or might not make its way up onto the grand stage. And there's one particular story that I learned that I thought expressed this quite well. It was common for the queen or the king throughout the ages to start off on the first day of the gathering of parliament by showing up at the Parliament in full royal wear with a crown and a robe, walk their way down the hallways and stairways of Parliament until they came into the main chambers of Parliament and to begin the Parliament session together. Tradition held year after year after year, and Queen Elizabeth did this each year as Parliament would gather together for the first time. Well, as time went on, it became harder and harder for the Queen to be able to make her way up and down the stairs as she aged so a few years back, starting in 2016, they made a decision to, to help the queen by getting her on the elevator. <laughs> so one day in particular, as she was preparing to come before parliament, she got into the elevator in her full robe and crown and scepter with her assistant standing there in the elevator, and they prepared to go to the right floor. Unfortunately, the assistant hit the wrong floor. And when the door opened up, they were on the wrong floor, and there standing there was one of the cleaning ladies with her cart, head down, marching her way into the elevator. As she got into the elevator and the door closed behind her, she looked up and realized who was standing in front of her, who she had managed to pin against the back wall of the elevator. Apparently, the cleaning lady then used some words that probably wouldn't have been appropriate in front of the queen. And there was a moment of uncomfortable silence until that uncomfortable silence was broken by Queen Elizabeth bursting out in laughter. And as she laughed and as they realized the absurdity of the moment... They got ready to move on, but the queen did something next that was most important. Rather than returning back to the floor for the cleaning lady to get out on her normal duties, she said, nope, let's go to the parliament floor. So as the doors opened up, the queen emerged in her royalty coming down the aisle and right alongside of her was the cleaning lady pushing her cart. Later that day, the queen invited the cleaning lady to her house for high tea, and she repeated that every year for the rest of her life. See, that's a different image of royalty. That speaks more to another creation story that we find in Scripture, but this time it's in the gospel according to John The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. This God who is creator and judge and king chooses to reveal his glory to us through his Son, Jesus, coming to be among us as one of us. God with us, Emmanuel, to walk alongside us, to share the pain and struggles of life, to speak the truth of who God is and his deep, deep love for a creation that is fallen and broken and filled with pain and filled with sinners like you and me. But instead of standing above it all, he chooses to enter right into it with us. This is the picture of the God of Genesis that is revealed to us also as God in Jesus Christ in the Gospel of John. There's a reason this parallel is there, and it's because all of Scripture is meant to point us towards Jesus and as we make our way through these pages and as we explore and go on this journey together, it is my hope that you would understand what it is that God is up to, that you would see on those pages the story of the people as it unfolds for sure. But reading between the lines, recognizing the context of God's great gift to us, a gift of life, the gift of healing the gift of salvation and forgiveness and the gift of eternal life. That's the story from the beginning. And wouldn't it be a good day today to let this be a new beginning for you? All of us need new beginnings. No matter what place you find yourself in life together today, in this family, Jesus is the one who makes us family. And if you want to know him as the one who does come to love you and to forgive you and to heal you and to give you eternal life, there is no better day than today to know this truth. With that, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you today as real human beings, broken, filled with joy as well as sorrow. Father, just like that opening story that talks about the dirty laundry, Lord, we know that we come with our dirty laundry too. And Lord, that only makes sense to know that we can come with that laundry when we know that you are the one who comes not to pour out shame, but to pour out grace, to cleanse us from our sin. And take these garments and make them white as snow. Jesus, only you can do that. And as we step into this journey this year, Lord, I pray today that anyone who is coming into this place feeling like they are clothed in shame or feel separated from you or like somehow they just can't possibly live up to you would recognize, Lord, that... While those things are true, the ultimate truth is what you say about us. The ultimate truth, Lord, is the new beginning that you offer to each one of us when we put our trust in your son, Jesus. So today, great Father, today, holy God, today, Jesus Hear the cry of creation. Hear the broken hearts of your people. Help us to receive that love from you, that forgiveness from you, and that eternal life as a gift that begins now, today. We trust in you and you alone, Jesus, to do this work in us. Begin that work in a new beginning in us today. We pray this all, Jesus, in your name. Amen.